Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and amateur food anthropologist, take you through all things food and psychology. Now this episode was a real indulgence for me. One of the most fascinating things about being a psychologist is understanding how our daily struggles, whether that's our romantic relationships or our social groups or even our political beliefs, emerge from our evolutionary history. And for me, that's important because I think to understand where we are and where we're going, we have to have a clear sense of where we've come from. So it was a real pleasure to get a little time with evolutionary biologist, Heather Hying. Heather is a scientist, educator, and author who earned her PhD in biology from the University of Michigan, where she earned the university's top honor for her dissertation. On top of that, she has a BA in anthropology, which is a study of human societies and behavior. Heather has researched the evolution of social systems across a range of different organisms, including humans, and her book, Antipode, is based on her experiences in Madagascar while she was studying, of all things, the sex lives of poison frogs. In 2017, she resigned from her tenured professorship at the Evergreen State College, where for 15 years she provided undergraduates with an evolutionary toolkit with which to understand what it is to be human and how to be critical, engaged citizens of the world. There, she also designed courses that prioritised the scientific method and pushed students outside of their own certainty and comfort zones, something I am very big on. And this is what we get into most of all, the relationship between safety and risk, the growing attack on science, and how you can improve your critical thinking skills. I loved this episode. I could have spoken to Heather for hours and hours and hours, and I hope you enjoy it too. Heather, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. I really, really appreciate it. I am thrilled to be talking to you, Kimberly. Thank you. It's really an honour. And on the Food Insight podcast, we start each Breaking Bread episode by sharing my guests' meaningful food. And you sent me your recipe. I made it this afternoon. But for the sake of the audience, can you explain what it is and why it's meaningful to you? Sure. Um, let's see, what I sent to you was the Venezuelan green sauce, is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. Um, so it is uh, It is not a sauce that my family and I have run into in our travels, although um, Venezuela is adjacent to where, we've, where we spent a fair amount of time in Ecuador and 
Um, my husband and I have spent a lot of time in, in Latin America in general. Um, it is a it is a simple, delicious sauce uh, with cilantro as its base, as opposed to the sort of standard Venezuelan green sauce that people think of chimichurri, which is parsley as its base. Uh, so it's uh, it's a mixture of olive oil and and cilantro and garlic and onion and green and a little bit of green pepper, all pureed together. And I will make it in very large batches so that we always have some on hand. Uh, and you know it goes amazingly beautifully with. Uh, just about any meats, uh, vegetables, carbs, really anything. But um, my favorite way to eat it is after after we have a steak dinner, I'll make sure to have bought a bit of extra steak. And the next day we'll slice that steak thinly and fry it up uh, in a pan with butter and some thinly sliced red and green bell peppers and have that steak and peppers over rice with uh, a tremendous amount of green sauce on it. <laughs> and it's, it's just one of these meals that um, my family and I, my, my husband and my two boys and I, uh, have come together around very often. You know, we, have, we, we tend to have many, many meals together. Uh, and, and at least until very recently, we're cooking almost all of our meals at home, uh, which, is, which is wonderful, right? It's, it, is, mm. it is the way to come to know each other and to trust each other and to be prepared to push back against, you know, ideas that you don't like or, or emotions that feel that feel awkward to you when you are, you know, literally breaking bread together, mm. as you well know. Uh, so that's that is one of, of many foods that feels near and dear to my heart. You've, you've kind of centered it around the kitchen table, and are those kind of shared meals an important part of? that bonding time and that discussion time for you and your family. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it is both cliche and true. Right? <laughs> so, you know, it always, it feels maybe a little bit awkward to, to pronounce something that is already well pronounced out there in the world. But um, if anything, I think it's one of these things that people know is true and yet mm. still have a hard time arriving at. Like it's it increasingly with all the demands on time, and attention in particular, you know, I think we, we are, we have more demands on our attention than we do on our time. And mm. Almost everyone talks a lot about, oh, I just don't have time. I'm so busy. Well, this is, this is more about draws on your attention than actually legitimate pulls of your time. And so having, having at some level forced the issue of we will sit and eat together because either I or we cook this together. You know, it's, it's far easier to, if you, if you order food in, for instance, to say, okay, well, you're not ready yet. I'll just eat because I'm hungry and it's hot. And so I'll eat now. And if you eat in 15 minutes, that's fine. And that, of course, um, you still get the calories you need, uh, but you don't get the, well, dare I say, you know, this is your wheelhouse, but you don't get the psychological sustenance uh, when you eat that way. And so when you do cook at home, you, you know, it's, it's very much harder for anyone in, in your family, in your group, in your friend group, whatever, whoever it is you're eating with, to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not really ready yet. I'll, I'll eat later. I'll grab something later. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? I actually, I, I did this. I cooked this, thinking of you, thinking of us. I filled the home with, with the smells of food that we're about to eat. This is an integral experience, and now we will sit. And actually, in my family, we have a, um, a, a somewhat joking, uh, but a, a thing that we do at the beginning of every meal which obviously emerges from a little bit of a spoof on, on um, I, I guess, God, I don't even know what the language is, but um, 
Sorry, would it be the Lord's Prayer that people say mm-hmm. at the beginning of the meals? Uh, grace. Um, grace, mm-hmm. grace, yes. Um, and so, you know, we're not we're not religious, but we're not anti-religious either. But you know, we don't we don't have any faith ourselves as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll say to my my family at the beginning of the meal, "Would you like to say a few words?" And the idea is that they actually at dinner we each mm-hmm. have to say literally three words that are disconnected from one another. That, um, <laughs> Down, present in the room, and um, and if anyone uses a word that someone at the table doesn't know, they have to be able to define it. And so in this way, we sort of embark on like this this stream of consciousness, free association. What words are in your head right now? And if one of the adults usually uses a word that one of the kids doesn't know, we have to define it. And it it almost always starts some conversation mm. that goes in some unexpected way. You know, that isn't exactly what we thought we might be talking about when we sat down. Mm. So. That's that's a fun fun way to begin sharing our food as well. That's great, and and I feel like I feel like I need to pre warn you now that yes, we're certainly in, in my territory, and I love that we've gone there because one of the things that I keep trying to convey a lot over social media, certainly with clients, is that food and feeling, affection, emotion, relationship, go hand in hand. Um, that they are intimately entwined and we all have an emotional relationship with food. And and certainly in terms of kind of individual psychology, that comes down to the idea that, of course, our first relationships are mediated through food. So, you know, the baby at the breast is also in the mother's arms. It's you know, in the, the mother's gaze, in the mother's mind. And that is intimately wound up with the, the feeding experience. But yes. y- your your story also reminds me of the idea of campfires and that sense that essentially, you know, in terms of the, the neurology, the when we're eating, it's because we're safe. You know, we're in a communal space. We're together. So there is something again about that experience of eating and communal eating, which is an extension of the idea of safety, of community. You know, that I if I'm safe, it's because I'm around people who care for me or will protect me. Oh, this is this is so good. It's so true. And this, you know, this is the the sort of original honorable meaning of safe, where we you know we want safety so that we can take risks, right? Mm-hmm. So that so that we can extend beyond our own boundaries of what we've experienced before. What we you know, including you know physical boundaries and mental boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, explore ideas, explore places, explore time in ways that we haven't before. And so I'll just I'll jump on with that. Mm-hmm. Extend beyond beyond my family. Um, when I taught undergraduates for 15 years, I would run field trips um, every every quarter. Actually, some of them extended. Some of them, you know, the longest one was an 11 week exploration through mm-hmm. Ecuador with my family. We, my husband and I were co-teaching this program, and our two boys and 30 undergraduates. Um, so some of them went extraordinarily long, but every single quarter, pretty much, we spent at least five days somewhere in the American Pacific Northwest. Uh, maybe in the eastern uh, scablands of Washington or up in the San Juan Islands at um, these, you know, somewhat rustic uh, state park run areas called environmental learning centers, which always had commercial kitchens. Mm. And so we, um, you know, we we had a budget that came from student funds, which I would divvy up and, and dole out to groups of students who had figured out among themselves what teams they wanted to be on, and they would shop and cook and and prepare you know at least one sometimes two depending on the trip mm-hmm. um, meals for everyone and then we would 
together, all of us eat all the food that um, that they had cooked for us. And you know, it was it was educational in just mm-hmm. every every regard. Uh, and then very very often um, after dinners, you know, not every night of a field trip, and some you know weather permitting, we would go out and we would sit around the campfire and. Does that look like education? You know, is that a college education? Or yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it is. Um, not you know, not only because we actually were, um, you know, Brett and I when we were teaching together, or you know, me alone if I was teaching alone, actually also talking about evolution and and such around the campfire. But even when we weren't, what mm-hmm. we were doing was we were we were creating community and we were creating mm-hmm. actual basis for trust. And once you have that. And food helps. Once you have that, you can then push on people's ideas that they have with gentleness and with 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 respect. But they're very much less likely to react with like terror or bile mm-hmm. or imagine. You know, and this is the conflation that almost everyone does. Imagine that if you disagree with me, you are advertising that you don't like me. Yes. And you know that's not that's not the case, right? Uh, we should be able to disagree with one another and still hold great affection for one another. Mm, definitely. There's something, we have this, what's happening, I think, or what I see happening is this weird fusion between disagreeing with my ideas and dismissing me as a person. Um, and and it, obviously that position kind of sets up this hostility where if I have to defend my ideas because my ideas form part of my identity and if you attack my ideas then you're attacking me and therefore we can't see eye to eye and it's you know because this this is my my day job is is ideas it's helping people to understand the validity and the veracity of their own thinking and their own ideas to understand the meaning of them in present day context and historical context, but also to reality test them um, and to have them challenge their own thinking. I think sometimes people get the idea that therapy is a, a bit of a soft touch and we're just there to <laughs> help people feel good about themselves and, and tell them that they were right all along. But actually good not therapy, not at all, <laughs> you know, good therapy is about a challenge of, of ideas. And I wonder, I mean, obviously you've been in a particular position around ideas and ideology and I've been trying to work out what's gone wrong and I think maybe I've I've got a, a little kind of a couple of stories a couple of ideas um maybe I'll maybe I'll yeah so for example I am um, there was somebody on social media and they're a very popular influencer feminist kind of women's empowerment influencer and they made a comment on their own page saying fantastic finally women are going to not care anymore about what men think of them and they won't be trying to something like we won't be trying to compete for men's affection (laughs) (laughs) well and so I said (laughs) I said well you know that's a nice idea essentially but it's not that simple because if we think in evolutionary terms about sexual selection there's always going to be a pressure for males and females to compete with each other and for the other's attention and i was essentially i was i was shut down i was i was very much slammed down and i was told uh a that i was trying to derail the argument and b that competition between women is only an effect of internalized misogyny 
and and the patriarchy. <laughs> and I was I was kind of startled, and I, I was I think I was startled partly because I I've spent so long working in a bubble where we sit around and talk about everybody's ideas in context and and challenge them with compassion but also with rigor but i was i was really taken back i think by three things so one was just the the unwillingness to engage with an alternative viewpoint uh which i find quite frightening the the second thing was the conviction of their own position just absolutely i'm right you're wrong i'm an internalized misogynist there's you know feel sorry for me which was again quite striking and then the final thing was just the absolute disregard for for the biology for the for the science mm-hmm. well, I think, that, um, yeah there's lots uh, of places we can go with that <laughs> there's so many places and i mean i'm, I'm probably going to need to be prompted to remember <laughs> all, all of them but um let's see to your second point about how entrenched they were mm. in their position and you know we I, I think we've all seen this at this point it sounds like you've seen it up close and personal in a way that it was a personal attack and i certainly have as mm. well several times but um you know, i'm no longer a professor in part because it came to my college and and made these sorts of really entrenched and immovable demands on reality in mm. fact right um so <clears throat> i think one of the things that I and and many others have been saying that I think falls on deaf ears because it's not understood as, as where it's coming from um, by many of the the new ideologues is this looks like an attack on science. This looks like an attack on enlightenment values of rigor and logic. And yes, of course, we need to do everything that we're doing with compassion and respect, but logic and rigor are going to help us understand what's true in the world. Mm. And so when 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 ideologues, when people who are feeling righteous about their position and cannot back down from it or, or can't even imagine a reason why they should really mm-hmm. hear that, they I think they again think, yes, patriarchy <laughs> and, um, you know, old white guys and, you know, and, you know, the old white guys having, you know, produced most of the, you know, Western canon of science mm-hmm. until very recently is true, but it was also done via the scientific method. And, you know, that's, that is, the thing that I think is missing and what I was I was able to teach effectively for many, many years, which is that actually science is the tool, the scientific method mm. wherein we make observations and we generate hypotheses that might explain those observations. And then we try to generate the predictions that would be true if those hypotheses were true. And mm. then, and this is maybe the most important point, we try to falsify them. Mm. We try as hard as we can to prove ourselves wrong. We had an idea. What would be true? What would what could show up right now or at any moment? You know, from any from any place, from our own research, uh, from friends, from enemies, from anyone that would force us to say, "Huh, okay, falsified. I was wrong." Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is the scientific method. And scientists have to learn to feel good about that outcome. Mm. Like, hey, success, success. I was wrong. And mm. I mean, that's that's actually so counterintuitive and to me that creates a kind of compassion for being wrong mm. and a an understanding of the value of being wrong and an understanding too of this thing that both of us have touched on already which is that your ideas and who you are are not the same thing mm. even if your ideas form part of who you identify as mm. so um yeah yeah i wonder 
because the, the being wrong one is a big one, isn't it? And I wonder whether, and this is partly speculation, kind of thinking aloud, but I wonder whether, in part at least, there's something about the education system that makes us very fearful of being wrong because wow. it certainly strikes me that much of, of education is, is outcome over process, isn't it? It's, we need you to get the right answer and almost we don't really other than a little bit of showing you're working, you know, if you get the right answer, that's that's what we're interested in. And there's much less emphasis on the process by which you come to an outcome and the value and maybe pleasure or interest or curiosity in that process, irrespective of the outcome almost. Yeah, that boy, again, there's so much there. You know, I, know, I know much less about the... Uh, British educational system than I do about the American educational system. Um, But I can assure you that the American education system is royally messed up. Mm. Uh, And it didn't, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, But in part, what is going on is that, and you use this word, is that people are, you know, people, teachers are overworked and they have too many students Mm. and there are too many regulations about what they need to accomplish. And so it's, you know, teachers are being told it's outcome, it's about outcomes uh, in terms of test scores as well as students, sure. um, so I'm not I, I'm not trying to put the blame you know only on teachers here, but one of the things that I've seen teachers at every level you know K through 12 and higher ed both and I have more experience watching it in higher ed, but mm. my own children have been through you know a lot of a lot of schooling in the earlier years, um, is that people teach through fear. They use fear as a tool with which to control students in classrooms. And there is almost, I mean, again, we're, we're right in your wheelhouse as a psychologist, um, but there's, there's almost nothing more guaranteed to get people to shut down and not engage and not take risks. How do you mean, how how do you mean teach through fear? Sorry. Do you have Um, an example? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, there are, there are appalling examples, but um, more, more often it's, it's subtle. Mm-hmm. And it is about the authority of the teacher to make decisions, which you know pretty much all students, okay. once they're of a certain age, can can watch this watch teachers making decisions based on who they prefer at the moment, and who they prefer at the moment may well be based on who's agreeing with the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, having assignments be busy work rather than actually exploratory creative projects. And any objections are met with hostility. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, the in part, in part, this emerges from again, even even the best scientists who are supposed to be all the time working hard to prove themselves wrong, and therefore, if they have any number of ideas at all, will with some regularity prove themselves wrong, and therefore have to live in that experience of being wrong. Um, Everyone has a hard time being wrong. It's just mm. it's, you know it's it's not the preferred state of being. <laughs> and so what I've what I've seen too often is faculty who walk in with maybe not knowing as much as they should, honestly, mm-hmm. um, but also having a confidence issue and using the authority of their degree or their position, the fact that they're the ones standing in the front of the room and the students are the ones sitting in chairs in nice neat rows. Uh, to effectively say, if you disagree with me, 
it's because you don't get it. It's mm-hmm. because you're wrong, and you know, in, including implying I've seen, you know, it, it's probably because you're stupid. Um, mm-hmm. More often, it's because you didn't do the work, right? And so, um, using the authority of a degree to shut people's inquiry and creative process down is is anti-educational. Mm-hmm. But it happens all the time in supposedly educational settings. Mm. It's also kind of anti-human though isn't it i mean if if curiosity is an innate part of of human beings and and this is where you'll have more to say on this you know that evolution our movement as a species across the planet the development of civilization is about our curiosity to know how and why then the kind of shutting down of curiosity is it's kind of immoral isn't it Yes. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't hesitate to use that word. Yeah, it is, it is immoral. And, you know, the children aren't, aren't born, don't, you know, come of age at, I don't know, it, it depends on what you're talking about, coming of age, but, you know, children don't emerge at 18 months and six years and 12 years and 18 years, you know, knowing the scientific method. But I have used a shorthand for years and years. Children are born scientists, and you know, to the same extent they're born artists, and mm. they have they have those things killed in them. That mm. to the degree that um, you know the scientific method isn't formalized in children, but children are always looking to understand their world, to to see patterns, to recognize patterns, and to try to understand what those patterns mean and how they came to be and why they came to be. Just like you said, mm. and the modern educational system, at least in the United States does an extraordinary job of making sure that such unwieldy questions as but why uh, don't persist long in classrooms. Mm. It's so worrying. It reminds me of um, when I was paying my way through my professional training, I worked in a law firm and I managed pro bono and community investment programs. So, you know, getting lawyers to do nice things for free. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was, yes, it was a little, um, but every year we did a, an in-house charity quiz and, you know, so the different departments paid their entry fees and we had one of the uh, lawyers pull together some questions and, and it was just a, you know, fun night. And um, there was no prize. There was no, you know, only the glory of boasting about it the next day. But there were no clients there. Nobody would see. And I remember going around the tables during the evening and seeing one of the uh, newly qualified lawyers looking up the answers on his BlackBerry. (laughs) And I just thought, isn't this astonishing? You know, this is this is a very low stakes event. It's for charity, it's in-house, there's no pride and there's no shame. Yet the the need to win or the need to be the best one or the right one trumps the enjoyment of the event and the process and the whole point of just seeing what you know um, and just kind of being there. Oh, that's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's such a great anecdote. And uh, I so on these field trips that I used to run... Um, one of the one of the reasons to do them, in addition to explicitly building community and also to you know teach some field methods and some you know behavior and such, mm-hmm. which was my, which was usually what I was teaching on these field trips, um, was to go to places. And this was becoming more and more difficult over time, of course. But I began teaching at the college level in two thousand two, 
to go to places with no access to the outside world, mm. right? With no no cell service and no internet. And um, and by I guess my last long field trip in um, in Ecuador for eleven weeks in two thousand sixteen. Um, you know, most of Ecuador, of course, has has Wi-Fi, Mifi, as they pronounce it there. But um, but not the Amazon, right? There's still places deep, deep, deep in the Amazon where there isn't any, and it is. So you know, we would we would be at various field sites for a week or so, and you know, I, I always spend a long time talking to students in advance about what this might feel like to them, and that, you know, ask them to think about what it, what they thought it would feel like in advance. And also to try to take careful note of how it actually felt and what their actual experience of mm-hmm. effectively going through withdrawal um, um, from you know it, I, I'm, this story is more about the access to information, but mm-hmm. of course also withdrawal from social media was maybe the most the more acute and thing to to show up on the horizon when people were suddenly cut off from from that tether from that electronic tether. Mm-hmm. But what what being in a place with a college program, you know, a bunch of smart young people uh, without the ability to ask Google, it prompted a realization of how dependent we are. And it Mm. also allowed us to actually really do the thing that we would talk about, you know, in class, in in class back on campus, um, which was, okay, yes, you could look that up, but if you couldn't, how would you know? Like, how would you begin mm-hmm. to answer the question of, you know, why why does a full moon start to become unfull from one side rather than the other? Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. exactly are um, what exactly are the equinoxes and solstices? Uh, which you know, which are that's an easy one if if you were doing the kind of work that we were doing. But it's amazing how many students don't know. Mm-hmm. And can can you put together a model of your world? Like in that in that case, literally a model of the solar system mm-hmm. and the Earth's position in it and its tilt and such, such that you can understand what these real you know not socially constructed but real astronomical phenomena are, or do you need to use Google to get to an answer? And um, maybe even more interesting yet than the information is when you have derived the answer yourself, um, you know, or, you know, certainly with people, like, mm-hmm. but in a group without help of some anonymous source that is off-site and that you will never meet, but in, communi- in conversation with other people, uh, when you have figured something out, does that information, in fact, stick with you longer than if you just mm. looked it up? Of course it does, course right? Like, there's just does. no doubt at all that the information that you figure out how to derive uh, through logic and through conversation actually stays with you, and then you can use that to help build a, a more and more complete sort of mental architecture for yourself, whereas when you Google something, it's in, it's out, it slides away, mm. and it's, you know, it's fast food information. Mm. It's, it's, it's that kind of diet Rather than rather than sitting at table and sharing long conversations over home cooked meals, mm. I mean, I think there really is a good analogy there. Yeah, it really makes me wonder about because you know Instagram's only ten years old and maybe Twitter a little bit older, but you know it's not been around very long. We don't really know the effect that these sorts of media are having on our minds and on young people's minds. I think in particular. I'm seeing little tiny anecdotes. So the shift in my practice over the last five years, maybe, is that barely anyone walks into 
a therapy room without their phone now um whereas the therapy room of old (laughs) used to be you know it's a kind of sacred space it's just you and your therapist and your thoughts and the conversation that emerges between the two of you and now the phone is there and it kind of sits either on the table or by this certainly within arm's reach and And do you i mean maybe maybe you don't want to answer this but do you have them turn it off or do they do do people sometimes use it during session it it does seem like a third a third thing in the room a third conscious at some level i think it really is and it really depends um and I think actually it's it's something that therapy is really going to have to tackle more seriously. I think the certainly the older vanguard will maybe ask people to leave it outside. I, I certainly there was a bit of research that came out of Korea. I think that said that people, young people, are seeing their phones as an extension of of themselves, such that when it was taken away from them, they felt bereaved as if you know as if they'd lost the limbs and i think there's something that we really need to understand um it is it is extraordinary and i know you know people like us will sound like luddites <laughs> to, um, to the true believers um some of whom were older at least than you um and, you know may, maybe even than me but the, you know the the this is where we're going anyway and this will actually help us become more than human mm. you know, superhuman argument that's coming out of you know some parts of silicon valley mm. and, and other tech centers um gives me the willies <laughs> <laughs> no no me too and i am um, it makes me worried and not just wonder but worried mm-hmm. about our capacity to just be with our own thoughts mm-hmm. and i worry what, about what that says for for creativity because creativity comes out of a quiet mind for self-knowledge and self-understanding because that's about introspection and not having your own thoughts crowded out with information from the outside but what do, do you have any thoughts on that hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Oh yes, <laughs> so many things. Um, absolutely. So uh, again, something I used to do uh, in my college programs that I taught the, usually the very first day 
um, but almost always the very first week, I would give an assignment which was mostly designed to um, help students learn how to observe without interpretation. It is observe Mm -hmm. without interpretation, and from those observations, generate hypotheses and predictions. And so, you know, just empirically, what is it like to try to discern pattern in the universe, and um, and what would a testable hypothesis look like, and what would a test look like? And it was uh, a field exercise that I borrowed and and changed a bit from something that was done to me when I was a graduate student. That was originally originally emerged from something that the Organization for Tropical Studies, um, a terrific organization that that runs a bunch of graduate. Um, work for basically students in tropical biology in the U mostly in the US, although it's international, I think. My version of this 20 questions exercise was I would take all of my students out side, uh, depending on where we were, maybe um, you know, somewhere in the state of Washington usually, but um, once I did it in uh, Panama, once in Ecuador, uh, and you know sometimes other places, take them all out and have told them in advance bring nothing, so please bring nothing except uh, your notebook, your field notebook, and a pen or a pencil, and you know, a water bottle if you like, and enough clothes such that you can uh, be comfortable outside in whatever the weather is doing right now for two mm-hmm. hours. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this in the pouring rain or when it was bitterly cold out. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to Torture session. <laughs> right. Um, and I would drop them. Um, one at a time, within earshot of each other, but out of eyeshot, not that that's a word, but um, you know, not within visual range of one another, and as far away from each other as I could get, but I would, you know, if I had 25 students, I would do it, if I had 50, I would have my co-faculty take half the students in a different direction, mm-hmm. and drop them along a trail, or along a coastline, or, you know, depending on what kind of habitat we were in, and I would, you know, find a spot for each of them, is there, you know, this long line of people snaking through the woods, usually. Um, I say, okay, you know, you go, you go there, um, I'll be back for you in two hours. Mm. Find a spot, settle down, don't move. Like, really, don't, don't go anywhere, and sit there, and ultimately, what I want you to start writing down is any observations that you make of what you're seeing around you and for the purposes of this exercise I said try to make the observations about what's going on outside of your head rather than inside of your head Mm -hmm. but know that for a very long time and maybe two hours won't be enough to quiet this down but for most people it was at least enough to begin to quiet down the internal narrative of what the hell is this I'm so bored I'm hungry I wish I had coffee what am I doing tonight what happened last (laughs) night (laughs) <laughs> like you know, mm-hmm. all of that chatter. That um, you know, if 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 you've done this, if you've spent time in the the field, meaning for me the you know the the tropical the literal field, <laughs> literal field, um, you know, or if you've meditated, I think mm-hmm. you know, or you know, a number of kinds of sort of flow states to mm-hmm. use a, an increasingly um, popular term now can help you achieve a state. Can help you get to a place where that chatter actually does go away, but increasingly, increasingly we don't even create the spaces for ourselves um, to do so. And so, um, you know, many students in advance of this assignment would say, oh, come on, yeah, it's a waste of time. And even most of them, I think, wouldn't say it to me, but I could tell from the eye rolls and <laughs> such. Um, and some would say, oh, I've done that. 
say, okay, good. Then, then you, then you've done this, and we're going to do it again because it's actually new every single time. You can learn from this experience, and you know, not only about, you know, the questions that I hope you bring back. That then, in the second half of the assignment, we will spend time in small groups and as a whole class, talking about some, you know, choice observations and questions that you that each of you had, and what the hypothesis might be. Um, you know, how you could turn that question into a hypothesis, and how you might test that hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it went forward from the the field part of the experience, but what I saw nearly always, you know, and I would promise them, look, I've, I won't I won't lose you. I won't forget you. I will come back for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to be able to say I never, ever left anyone behind, but there, at the very end of my teaching, I, there was one student who had fallen asleep, and when I was climbing up to a rock, and he'd fallen asleep, and I didn't know exactly where he was, and he never came when I was calling for him. And he you know, wandered back down about two hours later while we were in discussion after lunch. It's <laughs> like, so, I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you're okay. Um, but, <laughs> Other than that, you know, we were fine. He was <laughs> he was amused that he had fallen asleep and hadn't heard me, but also slightly alarmed that I had in fact left him up there. Um, but you know, other people had the confidence that I'm not going to forget you. I'm you know taking notes. I know who's where, and I'll come back for you in two hours. Which means that you can, unlike in pretty much the rest of your life, afford to not think about time passing. You can just mm-hmm. sit and watch. And try to detach yourself from the stuff going through your head and, you know, watch as hopefully it gets quieter and less frequent and softer over time. And then by, you know, some amount of time into this two hours, you will begin to be able to hear the birds rustling around in the bushes next to you Mm -hmm. and see the color of the sky changing through the trees and smell the wetness of the earth and maybe feel you know crumpling leaves underneath your fingers or the moss that you might be sitting on Mm. and those observations that sort of bringing bringing back to one's own body is is to me part of what it is to be fully human and this idea of you know phone as additional limb Mm. you know terrifies me because I think it points to exactly the opposite thing that is happening and we are becoming more and more dissociated from our bodies rather mm. than more integrated with our bodies yeah no I, you speak about it so evocatively is it I'm assuming yes but was it important to do this exercise out in nature as opposed to in the classroom was there something specific about that that you wanted your students to experience Yes, um, I would say there were two, well, two things, but one of them is a lot of things in and of itself. One of them was I needed them not to be able to see each other. Mm-hmm. They needed to, you know, I couldn't, with that many students, I couldn't ever, you know, the logistics just didn't allow for actually putting people so far apart from one another that they were really completely alone. Mm-hmm. But not being within visual range of one another and having been told not to make noise, uh, they could feel like they were alone, even if they knew that there were 24 other people somewhere out there in the forest. Um, and, you know, they, I, I spread them out along a line and clustered them in a group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was it was somewhat alone, and no one, you know, no one later on down, no one earlier in the line knew where the people later on down the line were. Mm-hmm. So you could, you really didn't necessarily know where anyone was. And so in a classroom, you can't, you can ask people to try to imagine that there aren't other people in the room. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this yeah. actually relates to 
the, the field work that I did myself and that I was teaching to students once we got a little bit farther into it was very explicitly animal behavior. Like how, how is it that we um, observe animals with as little interpretation as possible such that we can then formulate hypotheses and, you know, and such that we can then do observations in which we're testing those hypotheses, wherein we are not, say, watching, in my case, two poison frogs wrestle with one another, but wrestle, <laughs> believe it or not, um, but wrestle or like wrestle puts an image into your head right away. Right? Mm, like you have some mm. sense of what that is, and it might be even more ridiculous than you think because these guys really do go at it. They're tiny, little, brightly colored, aggressive poison frogs. Um, I, I came to, I'm quite confident at this point, understand what the frogs were doing, but when I first saw it, how is it that you write you know, wrestle or mm. fight even worse without using those words which are so loaded with connotation that as soon as you see it as a human being using language, you have a sense of what it means. Mm. So how do you write what you see as opposed to what you think it means? And um, that is so much harder to do if there's even any other human being around. Yes. So when, when, I, when I would do field work, I often had a, in first Latin America and then Madagascar, uh, I, I often had a field assistant on my extended field trips with me. So I you know, spent five months in Madagascar, and I had a, a wonderful young, actually, English woman uh, with me. Um, and we would both, in the afternoons, we'd go out into the field together to run experiments. But when we were actually doing the focal observations for just you know the baseline, what is it? What, what is the ethogram for these frogs? What is it that these guys are doing? Because no one has ever asked the question before. No one had ever at that point just spent time watching these animals to figure out what they were doing and what their social system looked like and if they were territorial and you know what kind of parental care they had, which it turns out they did. We never went together. You know, we had we marked we marked separate populations of frogs together, and then we would go to totally different places on this little tiny island off the coast of Madagascar where I was working, and sit completely alone every morning for depending on the weather three, four, five, six hours. Mm. Um, and when when I tried to train her, for instance, or my other field assistant on a different field trip on a different field season, how to do this work. I could describe it and I could be out there in the field with them, but there was just almost no way to do it with another human being there. There was, there was something about the consciousness of another human being that intrudes upon your ability to try not to be in social brain mm -hmm. and try to be in, in, in nature brain. And I'm trying to figure out now what these other organisms are doing, but as much as I don't want to be signaling or communicating with this other human, I'm human and that's what I'm doing. So um, that's one, that's a long answer to, I think, maybe the simpler <laughs> um, thing you asked, which was, could you do it in a classroom? I mean, I think you could modify it and do it in a classroom, but that's one big reason that it would be tough, because mm -hmm. you have all these other brains around you. And um, I think those of us who can completely uh, forget or obliterate the presence of other human beings around us and be in our own heads are also becoming somewhat less human. Like that's mm. that's that's a failing rather than a, a skill that I think is particularly honorable. Um, and then the the at some level simpler, but it would be harder to explain more fully. Answer is this was about observing. Um, you know, in, in my case, I, I was I was wanting students to learn how to observe 
uh, nature, which mm-hmm. is so complex and um, apparently chaotic, but uh, with some exceptions. You know, hurricanes are a lot of chaos, but, you know, I wasn't sending students out during hurricanes, and they were able, you know, there was order there, and I wanted them to try to learn to find the order in the complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and human-made systems, such as a classroom, are their own kind of fascinating, mm. but they've controlled for a lot of the chaos, and they've got a whole lot more that is that is a human construct that was not my main focus of what I was trying to teach them how to how to discern. Mm. And what was the, the students' responses? Like, how did they come out of this exercise? It was they they loved it. I think uh, you know. I don't. I'm thinking back now. Mm. I always want to. Okay, is there anyone who I know was really dismayed by it or, or just got nothing out of it, I guess? I, I don't think I don't think that taking the first half of the exercise, the two mm. hours in the field alone, um, writing out questions that come to you, uh, I don't think anyone was unmoved. There were mm. different levels of moved, to be sure. Um, but I heard from many every time I did it, uh, which was usually a couple times a year over the course of you know, one and a half decades, um, that people were surprised to be tuned in at that level to mm-hmm. what was going on in their heads mm-hmm. and then grateful as they could watch the, the, the voices, you know, without, without there being anything um, abnormal about those vo- the voices in our heads, um, you know, those voices sort of start to, to get quieter and quieter and for many students, they said to me it became something they wanted to seek out, mm-hmm. which I felt like that was that was extraordinary value, mm-hmm. sort of a collateral benefit of, of doing this with students. And then, you know, the second half of the exercise, which depending on the program and the timing, either happened on the afternoon of the same day or the next day. Uh, and it, the second part of the exercise, therefore, went a little bit differently if people had, had time to sleep on on it. Um, but the the second part was social, explicitly social, right? You're going to get together in small groups and each of you is going to choose your favorite question from your list and you're each going to choose um, someone else in your groups, a question from someone else in your group that is your favorite of theirs. And then you're going to take those eight or ten questions depending on the size of the group and you're really going to try to drill down and figure out, like, is this a question that could be posed for an answer scientifically? Like, is it that kind of question at all? And if so, how would you categorize it? You know, is it a what question that is just like, a, you know, what's the name of this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, some, something really kind of formulaic that mm-hmm. may also be actually a human construct in terms of the answer. Like, what do we call it? Sure. Well, what do we call it is, you know, yeah. is, is simply what we've named it. But what is it part of is not a human construct. You mm-hmm. know, like, um, oh, I was watching these Stellar's Jays. Um, I wonder, God, I wonder if jays and crows are similar somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, there, you know, there are scientific ways into that, and one of them is phylogenetically, jays and crows, jays and crows and jays. <laughs> sorry, um, crows and jays are really closely related to each other. They're in the same family of, of birds, and so you know, from a from a behavioral standpoint, we can try to begin to understand if some of the extraordinary like cognitive capacities and tool making <clears throat> and sort of theory of mind that you see mm. in crows and jays um, are actually there at like the base of the corvid tree as mm. it were corvids being the, the crows and jays or are those new innovations um, in in both of their cases so you know trying to begin to untangle those sorts of questions is, is part of the fun but um, 
then then we come back together with depending on the size of the class you know five groups or ten groups of these students and I've had them write up some of their favorite questions and hypotheses and tests on big pieces of paper and they've hung them around the room and we go around and have um, have each group talk through with the class at least one of the uh, the questions that they worked up and it gets heated like people really really feel in themselves that they have come to really want their hypothesis to be true mm-hmm. and um, and they will defend it fiercely and you usually you know, as I said I did this in the beginning of classes so most of these were not students who yet knew each other very well um, and they were willing to be you know, I, I never allowed meanness, um, but I did allow the raising of voices if mm-hmm. it was in the spirit of, you know, engagement. Mm-hmm. And, no, this, I really feel this. This is, this is what I feel. Like, no, you're wrong. This is why. That, that kind of heat without anger mm-hmm. and, um, you know, owning the fact that you have come to fiercely want to defend a hypothesis, even when the entire I mean, one of the entire points of the exercise is to reveal that you should that you should try to at all times be falsifying your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. That is that is an extraordinary thing for people to experience to experience in real time to experience watching their peers go through it. Uh, and so they can they would come out of that second part energized and. Um, mm. Amused, and you know, there, there was always a lot of laughter and and noise and excitement, and it felt. I think it felt. You know, I, I think I'm not misreading this. And, you know, certainly some rooms worked better than others, as, as will always be the case. Um, but the best ones of these, we emerged from you know, three hours, uh, three or four hours of that second part of that exercise, um, feeling like not only. Are there lots of ways to carefully and rigorously and compassionately answer questions that have that are out there? But there are still so many amazing questions mm. that haven't been answered. Like there, there is, there are new things under the sun. We have not done it all, and that means, especially for young people, feeling often like it's all been done. It, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> right. That this this gave them hope that they could actually make a difference. Actually. Mm. Well, you raised so many interesting ideas in there. Like, um, so the first thing that struck me was, and, and I think you said it started to get more difficult to do this later on in your teaching, was how easy it would be now to get permission to go and drop your students off along a stream <laughs> somewhere in the Amazon for two hours. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, um, that's kind of, it's an impossible question to know. Um, I was, if, if I were still at Evergreen teaching there, I would be ramping up to do another, I would be in the middle of the study abroad program right now with mm-hmm. plans to go back in January for another, you know, 10 or 12 week trip. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot this year. Um, like what, how would that look different now with, mm-hmm. with both, you know, with colleges having a very different approach to, to risk yeah. for legal reasons. Absolutely. And that's changing. And then... Uh, students feeling more empowered to say, I, I won't do that because it makes me feel unsafe. Mm. Uh, you know, my my very explicit philosophy from long before, you know, you said five years or so ago is when it when it started to feel like your practice was changing, mm-hmm. like people were always coming in with their phones and such. And mm-hmm. that is about the time period 
um, like 2013-14 that, for instance, um, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt have talked about in their new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, in which they, you know, they're trying to figure out, and I think they do so um, brilliantly, frankly, sort of what is it that has changed. Mm. Um, you know, it's not the, the so-called millennials so much that are really have a different attitude about about learning and about campus and about um, how to engage with one another, but it's the people coming up behind them. And, mm. you know, in part, it is it is certainly um, the different kind of technology that the younger generation has been largely raised with. Mm. Um, I think for me, I, I could not imagine continuing to teach students in an environment in which I was being told that I needed to keep them safe by the standards of some either bureaucracy or the students themselves whom I was trying to teach and you know educate into becoming more appropriately confident and less risk averse in both you know to some degree physical but certainly uh, metaphorical space mm-hmm. that if if I was if I was being told that I was hamstrung and couldn't do those things my feeling would be well then th- the whole exercise is pointless mm-hmm. like I'm, I, will, I will find other ways uh, to to try to teach this, and it won't be it won't be in the confines of a classroom. And in fact, I think that's part of what has <laughs> has mm, happened. Yeah, because it, it touches both parts of that exercise. I think touch on different aspects of risk. You know, there's the physical um, safety issues of you know where am I going to be for two hours? Will you come back for me? Someone someone going to come and carry me away? But then there's the the intellectual and the emotional risk of debate and of having your ideas challenged by your peers in an open forum where you can all see each other, you know each other's thoughts and beliefs and you put yourself in a position to be told uh, you're wrong or that doesn't make any sense. And well, certainly for me, this is this is the nature of, of life. <laughs> you know, that, that life is is risky um and it puts me in mind of when people talk about relationships and obviously relationship issues come up quite a lot and and we want to have a kind of a set of relationships or an experience of love that is is without risk you know we want to be sure we want to be absolute that our partner is our partner or that you know they'll never look elsewhere or that they'll never leave us and we can happily safely and confidently love them and nothing will ever go wrong and and i think that kind of wish generalizes into other areas as well and and that part of my job but also i think part of helping people in general is to understand that that life is this kind of full contact sport isn't it it's there is nothing and to think about something like love like you cannot really love without vulnerability and without being willing to to engage with that risk and you have to make a cost benefit analysis and whether the experience of love of deep love or of any deep emotion or any deep engagement you know it might be in science or in your career in your field following a dream that none of that happens without an inherent aspect of risk absolutely i think somehow there is, at least in, in popular culture, no good model for this that mm. is that is like a, at least a formalized model that is pushing back against 
the ideology of, of safe spaces. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, enough so that even early in our conversation today, I think I, you know, I, I think I tempered uh, talking about safety because it, it, it feels like it's a concept that is absolutely necessary and yet mm. it's been co-opted. That the kind of safety that people are asking for on college campuses and increasingly elsewhere actually looks like danger to me. Mm. Like actually may feel in the moment like because there is no pressure from anything that you find inconvenient or uncomfortable mm. or disagreeable, you feel like you're in a safe cocoon. But that does render you weaker. Mm. That, you know, that, that does render you less capable of going out into the world and challenging and being challenged. Like you, you will not be able to be as functional if, if it's that cocoon that you seek. And that is not in any way to suggest that there's not real trauma out there mm -hmm. and that especially you know the the sooner after the more acute trauma there is that people often will you know, really actually need to be protected mm. in many ways um, on the other hand being able to fully experience you know including bodily including viscerally mm -hmm. uh, your own reactions to to trauma if that is in fact what has happened to you and then to go out into the world and be present and be as strong as you can be and not give yourself a hard time when you do fail or you do find yourself being weak or you do find yourself wanting to retreat that that's the way to move forward and mm -hmm. to become your best possible self so you know these safe spaces seem to be um, and you know I think I hope originally with with the best intentions although I don't think they're being wielded with the best intentions an awful lot anymore um, but I, I, I want to believe that originally they were they emerged out of a real sense that this was best that you know creating safe spaces for people that protected them from everything that they disagreed with mm -hmm. was a good thing but it's it strikes me very very strongly as exactly the opposite of what people need Mm. Well, I think I feel like I need to make an apology on behalf of, of psychology because I feel like <laughs> I think psychology to an extent and um, and sociology more so is kind of responsible for for some of this in as far as when I was training um, and that was 15 years ago. Um, all of these words, things like, you know, safety, safe space, triggering had very specific meanings yeah. so when we were talking about uh being careful about trigger words for example we were very specifically being taught and thinking about working with people with ptsd and helping them to understand what aspects of the environment might trigger a flashback for them or some sort of ang anxious episode you know they had very very specific psychological meanings in terms of of treatment and diagnoses um and that was the context in which I understood them and learned about them. So it's been this strange transformation for me over the years to see them transformed and overgeneralized, I think, into yeah. anything that might make you feel any mild discomfort as a trigger um, and anywhere that you might be challenged on your position or your ideas as being unsafe. And and so I, I feel, I, you know, a little bit conflicted because I feel like there is value in, in these words. And I, I do want people to feel safe to say what they want without fear of kind of personal or ad hominem attacks. But I don't want people to feel like because 
they have a particular feeling that their feeling trumps objective reality or the validity of somebody else's position by virtue of of them feeling it yeah no i i think that's exactly right i do from my perspective not having looked into the history it looks like it's at least been more co-opted by sociology that i i would mm. <laughs> I, I would psychology a bit more of a break than sociology on this thanks <laughs> um but mm. yeah that there is there is a, a co-option for sure as you say and then a conflation and you know this this actually is so much of so much of the confusion these days and it's not all of it by any means but is there oh there was a good idea mm. there was a, 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 a mm. kernel of a good idea i'm not you know, i'm not convinced that the sort of trigger trigger words is a good idea i'm not i'm just mm-hmm. I'm not saying i think it's not i'm just not convinced sure. um, but it might be um but certainly there are several there are many good ideas out there originally that become blown into something that are, be, are, are insane you know mm. they just they just don't make any sense and then those are the ones that because they are unnuanced and explosive and they get people's attention that uh that grab the public's attention mm. uh, so this the, the use of safe spaces and trigger warnings i guess you know the if if it had just stayed within um you know maybe psych but certainly sociology and sociology had you know kept to itself more or less <laughs> Um, we, you know, we wouldn't be having at least some part of the, the problems mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, college campuses, for instance, and increasingly K-12 and increasingly out in the corporate world are having, mm-hmm. wherein now um, everyone is expected to provide for people who claim, can claim at any moment that they need a safe space. Mm-hmm. And that, that feels like running away from becoming strong and, and anti-fragile mm-hmm. rather than... Um, rather than what it is advertised as, which is that this is what you need in order to be whole. Mm. Yeah, and and certainly from my perspective, one of my big worries is what it does to our capacity to think. And that sounds like maybe a big kind of grand statement, but I feel like if you progress ideas through debate, I don't think there's a much better way to be able to progress ideas but if you've you've gotten to a position where you've said well you're not allowed to say that and maybe even as far as you're not allowed to think that and you're certainly not allowed to sit and argue with someone else about their position then I'm not sure what hope we have to be able to progress ideas or or come to a position if not of of compromise but at least you know good faith interlocution you know i will i will willingly sit here and i am in good faith going to be open to listening to you not just hearing you but listening to you um i might even go as far as to say i'm willing to change my mind but i'm willing to make some sort of compromise of my position in order for us to make some progress on on this important issue and if we can't disagree with each other (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm worried, Heather. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm exactly with you. So we're in agreement. Um, but I mean, I think, I think it's the, it's the mark of an ideologue, mm. right? That if, um, if you are in total agreement with someone else, what are the odds 
that you each, using first principles, came to exactly the same conclusions across a wide range mm. of diverse topics. You know, if you're in complete agreement with someone on some topics, or even many topics, great, right? That's that that is, and that is how we tend to find our groups, of, you know, mm-hmm. our friends, and our, our affiliations. But if you are in exact agreement across the board, probably you both got those thoughts, mm. got those ideas from some shared source. Mm. Like that's just that's kind of just me using parsimony here, right? This is Occam's razor, like the simplest explanation for mm. how did you guys both end up with exactly the same opinions on all of these things. I don't think you generated those opinions mm. on your own. You know, I think I think you got those opinions from from a, a single other source. And and that's consistent too with when you try to engage someone who seems to sound like many, many other people on a topic and is quite adamant and vociferous about it, they are less willing to listen, as you say, mm. rather than as opposed to hear, and less willing to be movable. And um, and it does it often can feel like you're just you know, you're just waiting for me to stop talking so that you can continue with what you were saying before I started talking. Mm. Um, yeah. So maybe we can try it to end this on a more hopeful note. <laughs> That's perfect. What do you think is needed? Actually, after that little um, interaction I had on social media, what I was surprised to find was that people from that person's page sent me private messages saying, thank you for saying something. I was, you know, I was too afraid to say something because I got shut down. But, you know, I don't agree with everything they say. And and that was startling for me because part of this person's approach is to be, you know, empowering and all encompassing and, and accepting of everybody's position. But clearly not everybody in their audience felt like that. And it was important for these people that wrote to me that someone had kind of put their head above the parapet. So, so maybe there's something in that yeah there, no there there very much is and um you know increasingly increasingly we are talking we're hearing people talk about um the necessity of being courageous mm. when it feels like everyone feels a different way yeah. and if you know if you are convinced uh, if you have your convictions and you say a thing that you know is going against the norm um, in this climate, you can expect to be yelled at and perhaps bullied and perhaps, you know, perhaps worse. Um, and you, sh- you should still do that if you are convinced of the mm-hmm. virtue of your position, um, regardless of whether or not you are in fact the only person who believes it, because um, most things that are understood to be true are understood to be true first by one person, mm-hmm. right? But maybe to help make it easier for people, uh, in every one of these situations that I've heard about um, and that I've lived, <clears throat> what is actually going on behind the scenes is every time that you put your head above the parapet, as you say, um, there is an outrage, an outcry that is public and appears to be unanimous against you. Mm-hmm. And behind the scenes, many people show up and say, Shh, thank you, mm-hmm. thank you, I can't do it because... and. Almost everyone has a, has a reason that sounds good, and mm-hmm. some of them are, and some of them I would say aren't. Mm-hmm. And if they only knew 
how many of them were out there mm. feeling like I'm self-censoring because I'm one of a tiny handful of people who feels the way I do if they knew that actually there are many people and it's growing and that even the many people who are currently buying in to the orthodoxy of sort of righteous indignation and denial of science and reality uh, even many of those people actually if engaged in good faith with 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 care mm-hmm. could begin to be swayed that actually conversation you know dialectic in which we're trying to figure out what is true rather than convince one another of position regardless of whether it is true uh, is the best way forward uh, I am compelled that this is that this is both what we need and that it's possible and that most people um, look at what happens when you do stand up mm-hmm. look at the you know the what happened to you, part of it could be seen online, presumably. Uh, what happened mm-hmm. at, at Evergreen where I was was you know, very public. And most people look at that and say, I could never survive being on the other side of that. Like, that looks horrible. Mm-hmm. That looks horrifying, and I can't afford to lose my job. I can't afford, you know, whatever it is. Or, I, I, you know, I don't feel like I'm resilient enough to survive psychologically with being, with being harassed in that way. And I would say, and I'll bet you could say too, I'd love to hear it in your words, you know what, not only is it survivable, but it's actually empowering. Mm. Because you get out the other side and you go, wait a minute, A, the things that are being said about me are wrong. Like, I'm, I'm okay, let me check. Nope, not true. <laughs> I have internalized misogyny and I'm not a racist and a transphobe and all of these crazy words that people fling around mm. now, right? Um, and... Mm, more to the point like okay that's not true and i know that but actually now what are they going to call me now mm-hmm. like like now i can stand up and, and say truth and they've already used their weapons mm-hmm. because they're not very good you know they're just words that in you know in in almost all these cases are being used uncarefully and mm-hmm. falsely and once you get through that you actually realize that it, being in this position of being on the other side of the looking glass is how I've, how mm. I've been talking about it. Once you go through the looking glass and you look back on the other side, you go, oh, this is actually better anyway. Mm. And so I, I, would, I would encourage people to imagine what it might be like to go through the looking glass, to stick your head above the parapet, you know, <laughs> as many metaphors as I can. Through the looking glass, stick your head above the parapet. Um, you know, when it feels important to you to do so, and don't take the hatred and the bile that comes your way if it does personally. Mm-hmm. Watch mm-hmm. what happens and see if you don't walk out the other side feeling more like you're you're on solid real ground like you're more attached to reality and truth now and also a tremendously wonderful community of people who are who've done the same thing afterwards heather that is magnificent thank you you. so so much for that oh i didn't even get to ask you all my questions about evolution biology i might just send those to you separately Oh, this has been so wonderful. I, I, I love, I've loved talking to you. And that's it. Huge thanks again to Heather for making the time to speak with me. You can follow her on Twitter at Heather E. Hying. That's H-E-A-T-H-E-R-E. 
H-E-Y-I-N-G or find her on heatherhying.com. If you like thoughtful, reasoned and considered debate, I would really recommend following and supporting her work. In upcoming episodes, I speak to one of the founders of Nutritional Psychiatry and get to grips with anger, but not at the same time. There's some really good stuff coming up, so do make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes. That just leaves me to thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.